You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Next to me on my right was a boy of 17, Henry Parker. I remember it because while we stood at ease, he drew my attention to some violets at his feet and said, It would be a good idea to put a few into my cap. Perhaps the Yanks won't shoot me if they see me wearing such flowers, for they are a sign of peace. Capital, said I. I will do the same. We plucked a bunch and arranged the violets in our caps. The men in ranks laughed at our proceedings, and had not the enemy been so near, their merry mood might have communicated to the army. Presently we swayed forward in line with shouldered arms. As we tramped solemnly and silently through the thin forest and over grass, still in its withered and wintry hue, I noticed that the sun was not far from appearing, that our regiment was keeping its formation admirably. Before we had gone five hundred paces, our serenity was disturbed by some firing in front. They are at it already, we whispered to each other. Stand by, gentlemen, said our captain. Our steps became unconsciously brisker, and alertness was noticeable in everybody. We drew nearer to the firing, and soon a sharper rattling of musketry was heard. Within a few minutes there was another explosive burst of musketry. The air was pierced by many missiles, which hummed and pinged sharply by our ears, pattered through the treetops, and brought twigs and leaves down on us. Those are bullets, Henry whispered with awe. Private Henry M. Stanley, 6th Arkansas, at the Battle of Shiloh. I fired quickly into the advancing men and fell forward onto the slope for shelter while I reloaded. While firing down the line, turning on my back to reload each time, I noticed that a fine-looking fellow whom I did not know from some other company had crawled up as near to me as he could get, within arm's length, but not so well sheltered as I. He was firing away as fast as he could. I looked at him as he was loading his gun and preparing for another shot, when he said to me, Isn't it fun? I did not reply, and when I looked at him next, he was dead. Corporal Selden A. Day, 7th Ohio, at the First Battle of Kernstown, the Shenandoah Valley, March 1862. Welcome to the 46th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. To start things off, we wanted to let y'all know that we'll have a special announcement for y'all at the end of the episode. And it's nothing bad. No, but we'll get to that later. So last week, we started to talk about the three combat arms of Civil War armies with a discussion of the infantry. And this week, we'll continue that discussion. 
We ended the last episode by saying that the goal of all the instruction and drill the infantry went through was to transform a mob of volunteers into a disciplined military unit capable of maintaining cohesion on the battlefield so that that unit could maneuver on the battlefield and deliver effective fire upon the enemy. During the Civil War, the object of the fighting in every significant battle was for the infantry to close with the enemy, drive him from the field, and hopefully destroy him as a fighting force. It was all about fire and movement. But during the early months of the war, in the spring of 1861, learning to do that, which required hours upon hours upon hours of tedious drill, well, that was pretty much universally unpopular with the rank-and-file soldiers of both armies. But near the end of the last episode, we gave an example from the Battle of Antietam to show the vital importance of those long hours of drill, to show how important it was for a unit to be able to carry out those maneuvers, not just on the parade ground, but amidst the chaos of the battlefield. And after the last episode, we heard from a listener named Jake M. on Facebook. Jake is a 25-year-old Civil War Confederate Army reenactor, and he took part in the big goings-on at Gettysburg this past summer. Jake told us that a lot of those drills and maneuvers are indeed hard to do, and when you're in battle, that is quote-unquote battle, that they're even more difficult while marching and guns are firing and officers are yelling. And he said he couldn't even begin to fathom trying to do it while real bullets and shells were flying and guys were being hit around you. So anyway, we wanted to give a shout out to Jake. And we know we have some other reenactors who listen. So if you have any insights you might have picked up through your experiences, well, we'd love to hear from you. We closed last week's show by saying that what we would talk about next was the principal weapon that most infantrymen of both sides used during the Civil War and that's the single-shot muzzle-loading musket. Now, to understand what a modern weapon was in 1861 and understand what uh, an improvement that was, well, first you need to know what had come before. You need to know what was antiquated and old-fashioned in 1861. And quite a few soldiers of both sides at the start of the Civil War were still equipped with antiquated, old-fashioned, flintlock, smooth-bore muskets, which were essentially no different than what a French or British soldier had used 50 years earlier at the Battle of Waterloo. With a flintlock smoothbore musket, cartridges, already made up with powder and ball wrapped in greased paper, cartridges were carried in a flapped leather pouch with a slotted wooden interior, each slot containing a cartridge. To load, the soldier held his musket in his left hand, And yes, left-handed soldiers had to learn to load and fire right-handed. But anyway, the soldier held his musket forward horizontally in his left hand, took a cartridge from his pouch with his right hand, and bit the bullet end of the cartridge, holding the bullet in his mouth. Now, needless to say, this was an unpleasant procedure resulting in blackened lips, gritty teeth, and the taste of gunpowder and grease in your mouth. The soldier then pulled back the hammer to the half-cocked position. If the trigger was pulled at this stage, nothing would supposedly happen, although the expression going off at half-cock should be remembered. But then the L-shaped frizzen, which was really just a small cover, but anyway, the frizzen was then pushed in the direction of the muzzle, uncovering the priming pan. 
A small amount of powder was poured from the open cartridge into the uncovered pan, and the frizzen moved back down, thus sealing the powder in the priming pan. The musket butt was then grounded, and the remaining powder poured down the barrel, and the ball dropped, or spat, down it. The ramrod was then taken from its slots under the barrel, reversed, and used to ram the empty cartridge paper down the barrel, and the paper kept the ball from rolling out the barrel. Anyway, using the ramrod compacted the wad, ball, and powder firmly at the bottom of the barrel, and the ramrod was then replaced. The musket was returned to the horizontal, the hammer was pulled back to full cock, which made the trigger operational. The musket was then raised and fired. When the trigger was pulled, the hammer flew forward, struck the serrated frizzen. The resulting sparks lit the powder in the pan, and the flash traveled down the vent and exploded the powder under the ball. As you can probably tell, all of this was a time-consuming process, and a soldier could be expected to fire two, perhaps three rounds a minute on a battlefield. Now, there were a couple of major problems with this, with the old flintlock smoothbore muskets. First of all, they were flintlocks. And without a good flint, capable of producing a healthy spark, the musket was pretty much useless. A high-quality flint would continue to produce a good spark for 30 to 50 shots, but they were easily broken, dropped, or lost, so each soldier had to carry several spares. Second of all, as you can imagine, fiddling around with pouring a small amount of powder into the priming pan would quickly become a problem in wet weather, because if your powder got wet, well, game over. Thanks for playing. For example, at the Battle of Mill Springs in Kentucky in early 1862, it was raining, and many of the Confederate soldiers found themselves at a severe disadvantage during the fighting because they were still equipped with old flintlock smoothbore muskets, and they had a devil of a time simply getting their weapons to fire there in the rain. The third problem with flintlock smoothbore muskets was that they were, well, smoothbore weapons. That means the inside of the barrel was smooth, and that meant the musket was extremely inaccurate. A soldier aiming his smoothbore musket at an enemy over a hundred yards away in a battle situation was going to knock him down about once in every 30 shots. If the target advanced to within 50 to 70 yards of the firer, then the chances of a hit increased dramatically to one in three. At less than 50 yards, and if firing is part of a volley from his company or regiment, then the results were likely to be devastating. So you can see why in, say, Napoleon's day, it was important for infantry units to maneuver on the battlefield in close-knit formations that would be able to close with the enemy and deliver massed fire with their slow-firing, inaccurate, flintlock, smoothbore muskets. So, that's the old flintlock smoothbore musket, but in 1861, a modern weapon was a percussion rifle musket. Now, as you might guess from its name, the two big improvements with it were that it used a percussion cap and its barrel was rifled. So, let's take each of those improvements separately. First, the percussion cap. And the percussion cap meant a soldier no longer needed to mess around with flints or worry about pouring a bit of powder in the priming pan. Instead of the flintlock mechanism, there was still the hammer, but under it there was now just what was essentially a, a hollow metal nipple. 
and a small percussion cap would be pressed down over the nipple, and when the trigger was pulled, the hammer would fly forward, strike the cap, which explodes, sending a flash down through the nipple into the back of the barrel, where the powder there ignites and propels the bullet. Now, the big advantage of this was that it was less likely to misfire under normal conditions, but even more importantly, a soldier could now prime and fire his musket in wet weather, even in a rainstorm. That's because that little percussion cap replaced having to fiddle around pouring powder into the priming pan. The percussion cap itself was a small copper cover about the size of a pencil eraser inlaid with one half grain of fulminate of mercury, which is extremely explosive and is shock sensitive. So as Rich said, the hammer striking on the outer surface of the cap caused a spark, which traveled down into the back of the barrel and ignited the charge in the cartridge. The small caps were somewhat tricky to handle, especially if your fingers were cold or you were in a stressful environment like a battlefield, and so they were easily lost. But regardless, the demand for caps during the Civil War was astronomical. The North made or purchased some 1.25 billion, with a B, percussion caps during the war. In the South, at the beginning of the war, the limited supplies of rifle muskets were soon exhausted, so smoothbore percussion muskets converted converted from flintlocks became the general issue. And being the helpful host that we are, we'll post a photo on the website so you can see exactly what the cap looked like once it was placed on the musket. So that was the percussion cap part of the musket. That was the first big improvement. And the second big improvement was the rifling inside the musket's barrel. Cutting a spiraled groove inside a gun's barrel added both distance and accuracy to the weapon. The grooves in the barrel spun the bullet, and that spin gave it a more stabilized flight once it left the barrel, increasing accuracy and range. Think of a quarterback throwing a football. The spin he puts on the ball in the act of throwing it creates a tight spiral that allows the football to travel long distances accurately into the hands of a receiver while rifling does the same thing for a bullet. Speaking of bullets, a French army officer named Manet developed a new design to replace the round ball used in smoothbore muskets. The new bullet was a conical soft lead projectile with a hollow base. When fired, the gases created by the ignited powder pushed against the hollow base, sealing it against the rifling and forcing it to spin along the grooves of the barrel. That spinning also gave the mini-bullet a distinctive whizzing noise as it passed close by, and if you heard it, you knew that it had missed you. But those spiral grooves in the barrel also caused a problem. With each shot that was fired, the gunpowder residue accumulated in the grooves, dirtying and clogging up the barrel much faster than with the smoothbore musket. This made reloading harder with each shot. After firing a number of times, many a Civil War soldier could be seen hammering his ramrod into the barrel using a handy rock or banging it against a tree or fence post. Listen to this example. My gun was so dirty that the ramrod hung in the barrel, and I could neither get it down nor out. I slammed the rod against a rock a few times, and drove home ramrod, cartridge, and all, laid the gun on a boulder, elevated the muzzle, ducked my head, hollered, look out, and pulled the trigger. She roared like a young cannon and flew over my boulder, the barrel striking John Griffith a smart whack on the left ear. John roared too, 
and abused me like a pickpocket for my carelessness. Well, it was no trouble to get another gun there. The mountainside was covered with them. Private Val Giles, 4th Texas, at the Battle of Gettysburg. As you might guess, that was by no means the approved method of discharging your musket. So this might be a good time to go ahead and run through the loading process of the percussion musket. Okay, so this is pretty similar to the loading drill for the flintlock musket. And like those sequence of actions, they were hammered home with every recruit by continuous repetition, then more repetition. And this is still the case in an army today. The handling and firing of weapons has to become second nature. Well, a Civil War soldier was trained to load in nine, that is, load his musket in nine precise steps. Loading the rifle musket properly was a key factor affecting both the rate of fire and whether the weapon worked as it was designed. It was still a single-shot, muzzle-loading piece, and the nine-step process had to be completed correctly although veteran soldiers learned a number of tricks to give them an edge in reloading quickly. But anyway, first, a paper cartridge is taken from the cartridge box. Step number two, the cartridge is torn open with the soldier's teeth. And interestingly, this is why a man missing his front teeth couldn't be enlisted. Third, the exposed black powder is poured from the open cartridge down into the barrel, and then the bullet is placed pointed end up in the muzzle. Fourth, the metal ramrod is taken from its position under the barrel, and step five, used to ram bullet and powder to the bottom of the barrel. Six, the ramrod is replaced. Seven, the hammer is pulled back to half cock, and the old percussion cap is removed. A new copper percussion cap is taken from the cap box, and that cap is pressed down over the nipple. Step eight, fully cock the hammer, aim at your target, and step number nine, fire. Now, as mentioned before, when the trigger is pulled, the hammer flies forward and strikes the cap, the fulminate explodes, sending a flash through the nipple and into the back of the barrel, where the powder ignites and propels the bullet. And since all of this may be a bit hard to picture in your mind's eye, if you're unfamiliar with all this stuff, we're going to post a link on Facebook and the podcast website to a couple of YouTube videos that actually show the loading and firing process step by step. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The problem for most infantrymen in the Civil War is that while they learned how to handle their musket during the hours upon hours of drill in camp, Live firing and target practice just wasn't stressed during training in northern or southern armies. The result of this deficiency was that many soldiers learned their shooting on the battlefield, which obviously wasn't an ideal learning environment. During a battle, the adrenaline rush, the fear, noise, smoke, confusion, comrades being hit and collapsing with dreadful wounds all induced a frantic need for haste in loading and firing your musket. And with this life-and-death urgency for speed and reloading came the hugely increased risk of fumbling and making mistakes. A few of the most common human errors were Forgetting to remove the ramrod from the barrel before firing. It wasn't uncommon during a battle to see a ramrod pinwheeling through the air after being mistakenly fired off out of someone's musket. Forgetting to put the percussion cap in place on the nipple, resulting in a misfire. And to have this happen if an enemy was advancing upon you would have been a bit disconcerting. Forgetting the musket was already loaded and ramming another cartridge down the barrel. Firing off two cartridges could be done with little likelihood of damaging the weapon or injuring the firer, but shooting off any more than that could cause a burst barrel with adverse consequences for the firer. Amidst the chaos and stress of battle, forgetting the rifle was already loaded and ramming another cartridge down the barrel appears to have been fairly common. For example, after the Battle of Gettysburg, Union forces collected some 35,000 abandoned muskets from the battlefield, of which 12,000 had two charges in the barrel, 6,000 had between 3 and 10, and famously, there was one that supposedly had 22. Now, those numbers are bandied around quite a bit, but one has to wonder if they're somewhat sketchy, since after pushing three or four cartridges down the barrel, it would be obvious what had happened, since the ramrod would go only part of the way down. And as for 22 cartridges, I mean, geez, it's hard to see how such overloading could be done, except deliberately. The two primary percussion rifle muskets used by Union and Confederate armies were the Springfield Model 1861 and the Enfield Model 1853. The Enfield was a British-made rifle musket originally issued to the British Army during the Crimean War to replace their old smoothbore muskets. Great efforts were made by northern and southern purchasing agents to procure these weapons and make up the shortfall in their infantry weapons, and it's thought some 800,000 were imported by the Union or run through the blockade by the Confederacy. It proved a dependable and popular weapon, particularly with Southern soldiers. 
Although it got its name from the British Royal Small Arms Factory at Enfield, the British government was sensitive about remaining neutral, and so many of the Enfields used in the Civil War were made at private factories in London and Birmingham. But anyway, the Enfield weighed 9.2 pounds, was 55 and one quarter inches long, came with an angular socket bayonet, and fired a 577 caliber conical bullet that normally was interchangeable with the Springfield's 58 caliber round. The infield used a ladder sight system in 100-yard increments, using steps from 100 to 400 yards and a flip-up ladder for distances beyond 500 yards. The Springfield was the most widely used shoulder arm of the Civil War, seeing service in every major battle. It was made at the Springfield Armory in Massachusetts at a cost of $15 and by over 30 other private manufacturers. Its rifled bore, interchangeable parts, and percussion cap firing system incorporated the major pre-war innovations into an accurate and dependable rifle. Approximately 1 million were made during the war, and although a slightly improved 1863 model was produced, the 1861 model remained the basic infantry weapon of the war. It weighed nine and a quarter pounds, was 58 and a half inches long, came with a 21-inch socket bayonet, and fired a 58-caliber conical mini bullet at a muzzle velocity of 950 feet per second. Maximum range was a thousand yards, and effective battlefield range up to 500 yards. The Springfield was aimed using flip-up leaf sights. The site had two leaves, one for 300 yards, the other for 500 yards, and with both leaves down, the site was set for 100 yards. As you can tell from those numbers, the standard of accuracy de demanded with a rifle musket was a far cry from that of a smoothbore musket. With a smoothbore musket, aimed fire at anything much beyond 80 or so yards was usually an exercise in futility but a Springfield had to group its shots within a 4-inch bullseye at 100 yards, 9-inch at 200 yards, 11-inch at 300 yards, and 27-inch at 500 yards. But on a Civil War battlefield, where the nature of the terrain was a factor, and where the target moved and was often firing back, the effective range of the Springfield and Enfield was more realistically about 300 yards. And then, extensive research has shown that the actual average range at which fire was opened in Civil War battles was around 130 yards. A number of authors and historians have theorized that the rifle revolution, that is the increased accuracy and range of a rifle over a smoothbore, well, they theorized this rifle revolution, well, revolutionized battlefield operations during the Civil War and was a major factor in everything from casualty rates to the length of the conflict. But other authors and historians have contended that the impact of the rifle musket on the Civil War battlefield was much more limited, and that the biggest impression was made primarily on marginal operations such as skirmishing and sniping. Well, you can look into the matter yourself if you're interested, but we fall more into the second camp. And it's interesting to note that some Civil War soldiers, such as the Union's Irish Brigade, deliberately kept their smoothbores for the very reason that at the relatively close ranges at which most battlefield firing was done, the volley firing of smoothbores worked just fine. 
Plus, the barrels didn't foul as quickly as those of rifles. There are just a couple more things we wanted to point out. One is that it seems to be a truism that most Civil War soldiers tended to consistently aim too high, which is why you would hear officers and NCOs constantly urging the men to aim low, aim at their knees. Another point to make is that while soldiers were taught to load and fire from a standing position, this is also the position at which a soldier feels most exposed on the battlefield. So men under fire very often loaded and fired from a variety of positions, from crouching down on one knee to even lying flat on the ground and rolling onto their back to load, then rolling back over onto their stomach to fire. Listen to this account by Lieutenant John M. Gould of the 10th Maine. This is from the fighting at Cedar Mountain in 1862. Quote, It is a sad thing to refer to, yet in glancing along the line, the sight was ludicrous in the extreme. All were excited and were loading and firing in every conceivable way. Some were standing, but most were kneeling or lying down. Some were astraddle their pieces and were ramming their charge totally regardless of the rules on that point. Many had poured their cartridges upon the ground and were pedaling out the lead with more speed than accuracy, I fear. End quote. This is a bit off the point of loading and firing, but Gould went on to say, quote, The enemy were armed with almost every kind of rifle or musket, and as their front exceeded ours three times, we were under a crossfire almost from the first. The various tunes sung by their balls we shall never forget. The fierce zip of the swift mini-bullet was not prominent by comparison at that particular moment, though there were enough of them certainly. The main sound, or the air of the tune, if I may be allowed the expression, was produced by the singing of slow, round balls and buckshot fired from smooth bore, which do not cut or tear the air as the creased ball does. Each bullet, according to its kind, size, rate of speed, and nearness to the ear, made a different sound. End quote. The next thing we wanted to point out is that most of the actual fighting in Civil War battles was with the units deployed in a line. And a line is just what it sounds like. Within regiments, companies formed in two ranks, with companies positioned alongside each other in a single long line. In attack, this basic formation made the units less vulnerable to all types of fire than a closely packed column, and it could, if necessary, quickly provide a good volume of fire to the front. On the defensive, the two-deep line lends itself to conforming to linear obstacles or boundaries, such as wooden fences, stone walls, roads, streams, barricades, and the edges of woods. Deploying in a line when fighting on the defensive ensured the maximum volume of fire could be brought to bear against the advancing enemy. In the two-deep line, the soldiers in the rear rank would fire over the shoulder of the men in the front rank. As you can imagine, this could be a bit unnerving for a soldier in front if, during the stress of battle, a man in the rear rank didn't take proper care to extend the muzzle of his musket out past the front soldier's head. Asa Payne, a Confederate soldier who fought in a Missouri regiment at the Battle of Pea Ridge, recalled, quote, the Federal line was in full view, and I could hear something going zip, zip all around, and could see the dust flying out of the trees, and the limbs and twigs seemed to be in a commotion from the concussion of the guns. I remember that I was in the front rank that day, and as soon as we came in view of the Federal lines, the boys in the rear rank fired their guns on each side of my head. End quote. 
Well, Payne survived the fire of both friend and foe, but he heard a ringing in his ears for days afterward. And then last but not least, we wanted to say that in a future episode, we'll cover Civil War medicine, and in that show, we'll talk about the wounds caused by musket fire. So for now, suffice it to say that when a soft lead bullet traveling at a relatively low muzzle velocity impacted human flesh, very, very bad things happened. Well, we said last time that we could spend an entire episode just talking about the musket that was the Civil War infantryman's primary weapon. And lo and behold, we spent an entire episode talking about it. So those other topics we promised we'll have to wait until next week. But next time, we'll definitely talk about things like marching, uniforms, food, and camp life. And after that, we'll get to cavalry and artillery. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Rifle Musket in Civil War Combat, Reality and Myth by Earl J. Hess. Hess's book is meticulously researched and goes into the debate we mentioned before about just how revolutionary the impact of the rifle musket was during the Civil War. Anyway, he also uses tons of observations and reflections from the soldiers themselves, and the book is very easy to read, and in fact, um, we think it should be required reading for any Civil War buff. So that's The Rifle Musket in Civil War Combat, Reality and Myth by Earl J. Hess. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And don't forget to check out the website and the Facebook page for those videos that show how to load and fire a Civil War musket. So now for the special announcement. Well, November will be the podcast one year um, birthday, anniversary? Anniversary. Okay. So the podcast one year anniversary is fast approaching. And to celebrate that momentous occasion, we'd like to repeat a deal that we offered to you guys once before. Some of you will remember how around episodes number 24 and 25, we said that if you guys give us 50 new five-star ratings and or reviews between the UK and US iTunes sites, then we'd give you a bonus episode. Well, same deal this time. We're releasing this episode that you're listening to on Sunday, October 20th. And if you leave us 50 new five-star ratings and or reviews between the UK and US iTunes sites by Sunday, November 3rd, then we'll release a special bonus episode of the podcast the next day on Monday, November 4th. And just to remind y'all of the difference between a rating and a review, but if you're on the show's page on iTunes, you can click where it says ratings and reviews. And then with one more click, you can simply give the podcast a five-star rating. For a five-star review, you do the same thing, but you also take a minute or two to write a review. Basically write a sentence or two or three about how much you enjoy the podcast. So anyway, that's the deal. If you give us those 50 new five-star ratings and or reviews, between both the UK and US iTunes sites by Sunday, November 3rd, then we'll give you a special bonus episode of the podcast the next day. So we'll see what happens. And without further ado, we'll now say thank you 
for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, the History Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you.